We went up to verse 9, I think, and uh, we'll take it up from there this morning. But we're looking at God's mission to the world. You know, as I've been praying for Ukraine and the people there, uh, first of all, I've been encouraged that some of the churches have decided they're not going to flee. They're training their people to uh, administer first aid and uh, opening their basements up to those who uh, need shelter. And uh, so it's wonderful to see courage in Ukraine like that. Um, but as I was thinking about it and praying about it, I thought, you know, um, what we see in Ukraine is just the shadow of what really is happening in the whole spiritual realm because Satan is opposed to humans made in the likeness of God and seeks to destroy. He's a deceiver, a liar. He's always on the attack and he ruins lives terribly. If you look around the world and just see the immense suffering in our world, um, it's all Satan's inspiration. In fact, John said that the reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. Uh, the Lord Jesus is on the warpath, and he's calling people to himself and changing their lives and giving them an eternal hope. And we know that ultimately he will be victorious. We're so glad for that. Uh, so we're in uh, Acts chapter 9. We started in verse 1 last week, and uh, we've been looking in Acts chapters 8 and 9 at three conversions that Luke describes in a row. In chapters 8, there are two, and then in chapter 9, there's Saul's conversion. And, you know, I was thinking about it, though, though up to this point, uh, Luke has recorded that thousands of people have come to faith in Jesus this is where he starts actually to go into some personal stories of conversion. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, the first, the, the conversion of Simon, is a warning against false conversions. Jesus said there are many false conversions, those who think they are in the kingdom of God and they are not. And Simon is uh, a warning to us about that. And we went into that story a few weeks ago. And then the second conversion in the later part of Acts chapter 8 is the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he is, by contrast, an encouragement about what a true conversion looks like. And now we're in the third of these three conversions, and it's Saul, later becomes Paul's, Paul's conversion. And it underscores the greatness, not only of his conversion, but of every conversion. And last week, we saw that Paul's conversion was, first of all, an impossible conversion. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Humanly speaking, if anyone was never going to become a Christian, it was Saul, um, because Saul loathed the church. Uh, he was raised a devout Jewish person, and so his family background would hold him back. His religious upbringing would have instilled to him a certain set of ideas opposed to believing in Jesus as Messiah. And then he went into extensive theological training that would have reinforced that. He was at the top of his class. And um, his level of commitment is shown in the fact that he became a fanatic Pharisee. And he had an obsessive hatred, we see in verses 1 and 2, just breathing out murderous threats towards the Christians just before he's converted. And then we see that his was a sovereign conversion, that is, he was not looking for Jesus at all. God just arrested him in his steps and confronted him and spoke <laughs> with a voice from heaven, a blinding light, and um, drew uh, Saul to himself. Um, Saul was not a seeker. He was sought. 
And it's true of every Christian. Uh, the Bible says that no one seeks God. If you think you were looking for God when you found him, it's only because he was pulling the strings and drawing you to himself. That's what the Bible teaches. No one seeks God. All true converts were pursued and were captured by Jesus. And then uh, we saw that it was a gracious conversion in verse 9. Let me ask you, if someone hated your children and started to kill your children, and you could do anything you wanted to that person, what would you do? Well, I think I know what I would do. <laughs> Might be in jail for it, but I know what I would do. Well, God called Saul, made him blind for three days, so he could think about the fact that Jesus really was the Son of God, that he really was raised from the dead, that he really was the Messiah, and came to faith in those three days when all he could do was think because he was blind. And God forgave Saul. So now we pick it up in verse 10, and let me read those verses to you. Verse 10 says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So let's continue uh, observing just what stands out to us about this conversion of, of Saul. Uh, and the fourth thing I want you to notice is that it was a facilitated conversion. You see that in verses 10 to 14. And this is really significant. When God saves a person, he always uses a human instrument. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? God always uses a human being for the salvation of someone else. He doesn't save somebody directly himself. He doesn't speak to people directly and introduce them to the gospel. He always has some human messenger. He does not give the gospel message through an angel, but through people. Even as Saul was busily arresting people, he hated something about them. He hated the gospel he heard. He was hearing the gospel, the good news about Jesus through them, and he hated them for it. God always and without exception sends a human being. For example, back in chapter 8, when God determined to save the Ethiopian eunuch, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and sent Philip to the eunuch. And then later on, when you get to chapter 10, when God intended to save Cornelius, an angel 
spoke to Cornelius and said to him, Go fetch Peter, and he will give you a message by which you will be saved. Now let me ask you something. Did these angels know the message? Obviously. But they didn't give the message. It's always a human instrument that God uses. It's God's plan. Through preaching, through teaching, through personal testimony, telling other people about our experience and what we've come to know about Jesus, through the writings of people, God always uses a human instrument. God uses people like you and like me. So, verses, nine, or verses 10 to 11 tell us who God used for Saul's conversion. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Now, what do we know about this Ananias? What kind of a, of a person was he? This is really important because it tells us the kind of human being that God will use to bring other people into the kingdom of God. So what was Ananias like? And the first thing I noticed was that he is called a disciple. Now, you're going to see no meaning in that probably because it is so watered down today what a disciple is. But in Saul's day, a disciple was a person who attached himself to a teacher in order to become exactly like that teacher. They molded their whole life around what this teacher said and did. Jesus once said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he said, The disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Now that was Ananias. He attached himself to Jesus. He wanted to be fully like Jesus in every way. He took it seriously. It wasn't just a profession to him. He meant it. So like a disciple would, he wanted to think like Jesus, he wanted to talk like Jesus, he wanted to act like Jesus in all circumstances, in every relationship, by every habit, all the time. He was a disciple, a learner. Jesus loved the Bible, took God's word as God's word, he was going to do the same thing. Jesus loved others, even his enemies, well, that's what Ananias was going to do. Jesus spoke unpopular truth. Well, so did Ananias. Jesus cared for the poor. So did Ananias. He was a disciple. Now, Jesus calls us to only one thing. Go and make disciples. Not mere converts. Not mere professors of faith. Disciples. Those whose whole lives are bent in on learning to be like Jesus. And it's disciples that God will use. It is disciples who will make a kingdom difference. Only disciples can know the privilege of God directing them and moving them to speak to somebody. Only disciples will hear his voice. Only disciples will know his presence and his compelling presence to talk to others and to be God's human instrument. Now, Ananias was a disciple in that sense. His life revolved around Jesus as his teacher. Paul, later on, when he's talking about Ananias in Acts 22.12, he says this, A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. 
He wanted to know what God said, and he was going to do it. He was a disciple. If you want to be used by God in the lives of others, it doesn't begin with busyness. It begins with being something. Those are the people that God will use. It begins with a life devoted to Jesus and his words. And it continues that way. Now we read in these verses, in verses 12 to 14, that there are two visions. One is given to Ananias, and one is given to Saul. In verse 12 to 14, you read, In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Now, Ananias probably needed something as dramatic as a vision to convince him that he should go and see Saul. And you can imagine why. Saul's reputation had spread from Jerusalem all the way to Damascus. There were lots of reports, lots of stories, personal stories about what he had been doing, the arrests he had been making, the stonings and so on that were taking place on his account. And the Christians in Damascus knew that he was now on the hunt for them. No wonder he was hesitant. And so it seemed like absolute madness to go and see Saul. I think he needed a vision to do that. He didn't know about this encounter that Saul had already had. And in this, his vision, one thing really stands out to me. Uh, your translation in verse 11 might say, for he is praying. But that's not the literal Greek. And I think in this case, the little, literal Greek is really significant. The way that is literally worded in the Greek is this. For behold, he is praying. In other words, this is something to behold. This is something to take notice of. He is praying. Mighty Saul has been humbled. He's down on his knees. He's pouring out his heart to the living God. He's safe now. He's praying. And you know, when a person truly believes, the first response they have is to pour out their hearts to God. He's a changed person. He's praying. Do you remember that in your own life? I know for myself, when I really came to truly trust in Christ as my Savior, I was at my bedside pouring out my heart to God, telling him things that I had never told him before. I'd been raised in church all my life, and now I poured out my heart to God. And that, that's what's happening here with Saul. So Saul's conversion was impossible. It was a sovereign act. It was a gracious act, and it was facilitated. It was a facilitated conversion. No one in Drumheller is going to enter the kingdom of God without a human person facilitating that. God won't send an angel. God won't speak with a voice from heaven and explain the gospel. It needs to be a human person. And God is looking for us to be those kind of people. So Paul's conversion was in the fifth place. It was a purposeful conversion. If you look at verses 15 and 16. 
And as I read this, I thought, you know, no person is saved just to get to heaven. There's always a purpose God has in this life for that person. And we read about Saul's purpose in verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So Saul was the greatest enemy of those who would be messengers of the gospel. He killed the messengers. Now he would become the greatest messenger willing to die. And in fact, he did die under the reign of Nero for being a messenger of the gospel. Now, as you look at this, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus one day looked out the windows of heaven down to earth and he looked with startled delight and said, there's someone who's just the right kind of person for a job I need done. <laughs> How lucky am I? <laughs> I don't think so. Paul was a designer Christian. God determined to make Saul for a ministry he had for him for something he wanted him to do. And you know what? We are all designer Christians. We are all designed for something that we can do. And so he determined the Jewish home that Saul would grow up in. He determined that he would be a Hellenistic Jew, that is a Jew that grew up with Greek as his first language in a Greek culture. He determined Saul's choice of a trade that would become his bivocation when he did become a missionary. He determined Saul's strong, sometimes difficult personality and drive. He determined his education at the highest level in Jewish traditions. He, he determined that he would become a zealous, fanatical Pharisee. Because it all worked to make him what he needed. In fact, he even designed that Saul would be the worst sinner on the face of the earth. As Saul put it a killer of the children of God. Isn't that something? Eh? Even, even the failures, the things that made Saul cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, was part of God's design in his life. Because he would use it. Saul knew the arguments of his Jewish opponents better than they did. Have you ever had that experience? I remember... <laughs> talking with a Mormon fellow once, and I realized he didn't understand what he believed. So I, first I, I explained to him what he believed, and then, and then I could explain to him why I didn't believe it. Well, Saul, he understood his opponents better than they understood themselves. He understood the need for grace more than anybody else because he was the worst of the worst. And all of that made him perfect, a perfect instrument. My chosen instrument, Jesus said, and that literally is my instrument of election, my instrument of choice. In other words, when the term is used about six times in the book of Acts, it refers to God's choice for a special, a unique role. So in chapter 1, verse 2, we read that the apostle, about the apostles he had chosen, and then a little later in verse 24, we read how the church has set two men apart and one of them had to replace Judas. And then they prayed, Lord, show us which of these two you have chosen, this unique role that they need to do. In chapter 6, we realize that the seven 
deacons, if we can call them that, were chosen for their role. They had a unique role. Peter was chosen to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I think that's really significant. God chose, designed a purpose for Saul that was unique to him. And so are we. We are designed for a unique call. Now, that doesn't mean that Saul, Saul's role was easy then. That it, he just sort of breezed through it because he was perfectly designed. To the Corinthians, Paul admitted that he often felt weak and came to them even trembling. Um, in another letter, he requested prayer so that he might have boldest, boldness enough to fulfill his ministry. Often his ministry peers turned against him and opposed him and celebrated when he was put in jail. He felt the need of comfort and he told one of his churches that. He was a chosen instrument nevertheless with all his difficulties and all the struggles. And here's a really encouraging thing for you and me. His purpose was unique to his design. Peter wasn't expected to be Paul, and Matthew wasn't expected to be and fulfill the role of Peter and Paul. They were unique in their design, and I, I find that really encouraging. You know, I, I listen to people on the radio, pastors who are preaching, and they preach five times in one week, and I go, oh, man, you know, how do they do that five times, you know? I've been reading biographies of uh, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon. Ch Charles Spurgeon became a pastor at the age of 17. He couldn't hold himself back. He had to tell people about Jesus. And the church recognized his ability and asked him to, at 17 to be their pastor. And as a teenager, because he was so popular, he was preaching 10 times a week as a teenager. He began pastoring a church in London that had an attendance of about 120. Within a year, there were 1,200 people there. So they built a new facility to seat 3,000, and was, within a year, it was too full for 3,000. They had to build another building. They had to hire police to watch, uh, to guide traffic outside the church because the pedestrian traffic was so intense. They had to have police there directing traffic. And then some of these police would sneak into the service so they could hear Charles Spurgeon preaching. And you know, the average pastor looks at that and they go, man, I'm, I find preaching twice so hard. It takes me 15 hours to get one sermon together. Charles Spurgeon would begin his Sunday morning sermon Saturday night. That would scare some pastors to death. But I take comfort from the fact that we are designed to fulfill our role, not somebody else's role. <laughs> You're designed for something that you can do. You don't have to feel guilty about what other people are doing that seems so much more than you. You're designed you're a designer Christian. Yeah, it's comforting. All right, so um, Saul's conversion was facilitated and Saul's conversion was purposeful. And then the sixth thing I notice is that Saul's conversion was a life 
changing conversion. And you see this in verses 17 and 19. And I want you to notice four elements that were life-changing for Saul, but typical of every Christian. Verse 17 says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I noticed is this. Saul had a new family. Ananias said to him, Brother Saul. Now, four days earlier, Saul would have absolutely loathed Ananias and just want to grab him by the scruff of the neck and throw him into jail, have him prosecuted for teaching heresy. Ananias would have recoiled in horror and maybe even loathing as he saw Saul. But now they are brothers. They have one father. They have one savior. They have a sense of brotherhood. They care about each other. They esteem each other. And you know, one of the vital signs, one of the telling signs of a true conversion is this sense of brotherhood, this sense of family with other Christians. We recognize in somebody a bond. So Saul had a new family. Saul also had a new Lord. Ananias says, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to you. Now every true convert is delighted to recognize Jesus as Lord, as their benevolent master, as the one they follow. They are pleased to do his will. Their hearts are so changed that they go from an aversion to Jesus and his will to just running, running to it. They want to do God's will. Every Christian delights to do God's will. That was Saul. Every true convert is happy to see others who do God's will. The third thing that was a real change for Saul, not only a new family and a new Lord, but Saul had a new divine life. Saul was to be filled with the Spirit. And that's true of every Christian, they have the life of God in their souls. They cannot be the same. John goes so far to say that if anyone is born of God, they cannot continue in sin. The way you know somebody is not born of God is they continue in sin. He's not saying that they never sin, but sin is not their trajectory. It's impossible. They have the divine life in their soul. Peter says we've become partakers of the divine nature. And so every true convert has the Spirit of God in them, giving them new life. In 1 Corinthians 2, we read that by the Holy Spirit, believers, true converts, understand the thoughts of God. It says the person without the Spirit does not accept these things, the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, but we have the mind of Christ. We get it. We see it. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, things like love and joy and peace and patience, this transformation of character because of the Spirit dwelling in us. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that, that believers are governed 
by the Spirit of God. That is, that He compels them towards God. He leads them in their lives. God Himself in the soul. And in 1 Corinthians 12, He talks about these gifts of the Spirit, these abilities to do things that are spiritual works, effective works. So Saul had a new divine life. And then fourthly, Saul had a new identity. And we read about that in verses 18 and 19. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, baptism represented two things. First of all, it represented a pledge of loyalty to Christ. Christians identified with Christ. They were loyal to Christ. And I think about um, Roman soldiers and their pledge of loyalty to their commanding officer. And th this is one of the things that made the Roman army almost invincible because they would do instantly what they were commanded to do, even to falling on their own swords. They would drop onto their own swords. It was a, a solemn oath of loyalty to their commander. And the Roman soldiers called this oath their sacramentum. And Christians called baptism their sacramentum. It was their oath of loyalty, of identification with Christ. They were now Christ ones, totally loyal. And secondly, they were identifying with the church. Baptism was the initiation into the church. They were not even counted as Christians until they were baptized. And so from that point on, they identified with a church body. They loved the church just as Jesus loved the church. They would learn with others. They would fellowship with others. They would eat with each other. They would pray for each other and with each other. They would serve together. They would care for each other. Every true convert has this new identity with Christ and belonging to the church. So as we uh, wrap this up, we notice that Saul's conversion was great because next to Jesus, he has had the greatest influence on Christian faith around the world. He's written 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. But Paul's conversion has the same elements that every conversion has. It was impossible. It was sovereign. It was gracious. It was facilitated. It was purposeful. And it was life-changing. They became new in their identity. As we take communion this morning, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to take time to remember that in Christ, we already have a victory. That in Christ, we are converted to a new life. And that we have been saved from this war that wages against the human race. We are already victors. Heaven can't be withheld from us. We will win.